Hello and welcome to the latest employment law podcast from Stevenson Harwood's International Employment Team. Don't forget that you can subscribe to the whole series on iTunes, Stitcher and Soundcloud or by visiting our website at www.shlegal.com. My name is Richard Friedman and I'm a senior associate in the team. I have with me partners Kate Brearley and Kirsten Lucas. This podcast is the latest in our mini-series on employee competition, which coincides with the publication of the new edition of Kate's book, Employment Covenants and Confidential Information, Law, Practice and Technique, co-written and co-edited with Selwyn Block QC of leading employment set Littleton Chambers and published by Bloomsbury. In our first podcast in this mini-series, we discuss key terms to include in the employment contract to protect a business from competition during employment and to alert it to acts done during employment in preparation for competition once employment has ended. In the second podcast, we discuss the drafting of restrictive covenants applying after employment has ended. Today, we're going to consider the vitally important issue of when restrictive covenants should be introduced or varied during employment, or in some cases, at the end of employment and how that can be achieved. Kirsten, these issues are covered in one of the chapters which you co-authored with Kate in her book, so it's a particular bonus that you can join us today all the way from Dubai, where you now lead our Middle East employment team. Thank you, Richard. It's great to be here to discuss this important topic with you. As we know, to be effective, restrictive covenants must be tailored to the employee's position and role at the time the restrictive covenants are entered into. So when an employee's position or role changes as a result of promotion or otherwise, the business may need an entirely different form of protection, resulting in the need to introduce new or vary the original restrictive covenants. Sadly, all too often, contracts are simply filed away and dusted off only when the employee resigns, by which time it can be too late to fix any problems with the restrictive covenants. From a practical perspective, it's therefore crucial that covenants are reviewed frequently to check whether they still afford the business the protection it needs. For example, has the employee's role expanded into a different area of the employer's business? Has a promotion resulted in the employee having more managerial responsibilities and less direct contact with clients or customers? Or has a share acquisition or cheapy transfer impacted the employer's business or the employee's role? These are all good questions to ask and good reasons why an employer may need to introduce or vary restrictive covenants. I agree, Kirsten. A change of role or a promotion is a critical time for an employer to consider whether they need to introduce or vary restrictive covenants. Unfortunately, of course, introducing or varying existing restrictive covenants is not quite as simple as drafting restrictive covenants that are to apply to entirely new recruits. The key points Richard and I discussed in our last podcast on drafting restrictive covenants apply equally in this scenario. The employer must have a legitimate business interest to protect and the protection sought must go no further than is reasonably necessary to protect that interest. However, in addition to those factors, the introduction of or changes to existing restrictive covenants will be a variation of the contract of employment itself and so employers must comply with all the rules relating to variation of contracts. In the book, you look at, firstly, the use of unilateral variation clauses, the question of consent and what can amount to consent, the process of obtaining consent, and what to do if an employee refuses to give consent. Kirsten, looking at the first of these, are contractual clauses which permit an employer to make unilateral changes to the contract of any real use? In the context of restrictive covenants, Richard, the short answer to this is no. Generally speaking, there are two types of unilateral variation clause. Those that attempt to permit any variation to the contract 
and those which permit a specific and reasonable variation to the contract. But neither will be effective where the change is one as significant as the introduction or alteration of restrictive covenants. Certainly from my experience, I have never seen a case where a unilateral variation clause has been successfully relied on to vary restrictive covenants. Have you, Kate? No, and I agree the courts wouldn't sanction a variation on that basis. The appropriate way to vary restrictive covenants is to obtain consent from the employee. We would always recommend that express written consent be obtained, so there is no scope for the employee to argue at a later stage that the variation is ineffective. However, we recognise there are situations where reliance on implied consent may suffice and may indeed be the only argument available to the employer, and this is something Kirsten and I have considered in detail, both in advising clients and whilst writing the book. Indeed we have, Kate, although the employer's prospects of successfully arguing that there has been implied consent depends on a variety of factors. For example, has the employee actively objected to the change? The objection doesn't need to be broadcast on the evening news, but it must be a clear and unequivocal objection, as opposed to a mere grumble or statement of discontent. A clear objection will almost always trump an argument of implied consent. Another relevant factor is whether the variation has an immediate detrimental impact on the employee. If not, as will almost invariably be the case with changes to restrictive covenants, unless of course they are being introduced or varied on termination, then the courts are unlikely to find that an employee has impliedly consented to the change. One other interesting factor that has generated a lot of case law is whether consent to new or varied restrictive covenants can be implied from the employee's conduct. There has been case law which held that an update to restrictive covenants contained in a revised version of an employee handbook was impliedly consented to by employees who did not raise any questions on the changes at the time and continued to work. However, these were very specific factual circumstances and ideally employers should seek some clear unequivocal act from the employee from which it might be inferred that they are accepting the new restrictive covenants rather than just relying upon them continuing to perform their role. The main caveat to that and a further factor to consider when looking at implied consent is whether a wider ranging change in terms has both a benefit and a burden for the employee and the employee has accepted and received the benefit. For example, take the situation where a new contract containing new restrictive covenants is offered to the employee along with a pay rise or additional benefits, and these are extras to which the employee is not otherwise entitled. If the employee simply accepts the additional pay or benefits, then they may face difficulties if they later try to argue that they did not accept the new restrictive covenants as part of the overall package. So an employee who has been offered an additional benefit to which he is not otherwise entitled along with a new contract of employment which includes new restrictive covenants by which he doesn't want to be bound, would write to his employer refusing that additional benefit on the basis that he doesn't agree to the new covenants? Exactly. Unless the employee can show that there's some other reason why he is entitled to the additional benefit, this is the strategy the employee is likely to adopt. And conversely, if employers are looking to rely on implied consent in such circumstances they would be well advised to state expressly that the offer and acceptance of the additional benefit is conditional on acceptance of the new or revised restrictive covenants. So given the difficulty in knowing whether implied consent to contractual changes has been given, what steps should an employer take to obtain express consent? Slightly different approaches will apply, Richard, depending on the factual circumstances. In the case of a promotion, the process will simply be part of the negotiation of the new contract on which the promotion will be conditional. 
In contrast, if, for example, the employer has spotted that its covenants applying to a group of employees are inadequate and there are no promotions, the appropriate course is to enter into a reasonable period of consultation with the employees. During the consultation, the employer should firstly provide a copy of the new restrictive covenants and an explanation of why they are needed, give the employees an opportunity to consider the proposal, consider any suggestions for any alterations made by the employees, be very clear on what consideration is being offered for the new restrictive covenants, something Kirsten will talk about shortly, and lastly, consider making a cap contribution to legal fees to enable the employees to take advice on the new restrictive covenants. Of course, these steps won't guarantee consent will be given to the new covenants, but as a minimum, taking them will aid a defence to any argument by an employee that the proposed introduction of the new restrictive covenants amounts to constructive dismissal. Employers should also be aware that if they are proposing to introduce new restrictive covenants into the employment contracts of 20 or more employees, they need to consider whether they should be collectively consulting with the appropriate representatives of those employees. This is required where the employer proposes to dismiss employees who don't agree to the new restrictive covenants. Assessing when the employer's actions trigger this requirement can be a complex question and definitely one on which the employer should take advice before formulating their strategy. So, Kirsten, if consultation is not successful and an employee does not consent, either implicitly or expressly, to the introduction or variation of the restrictive covenants, what options does an employer have? In that situation, Richard, there are four courses of action open to an employer. Firstly, he may abandon the exercise, or he may continue the employment as before, but carry on negotiations in the hope that the employee will ultimately agree to the new terms. The third option is to give notice to terminate the employment for failing to agree the new terms. This is a pretty high-risk strategy that exposes the employer to the risk of unfair dismissal claims. That said, if there is a demonstrable and compelling business reason for the change, then claims can be successfully defended. The final option is to give notice to terminate the employment, but offer immediate re-engagement on revised terms that include the new restrictive covenants, and which take effect from the end of the notice period. Again, this is a risky strategy, but even if there is a successful unfair dismissal claim, the employer does have scope to argue that the employee could have mitigated their losses by accepting the re-engagement offer. A point Kate touched upon earlier was consideration, which is a requirement of all binding contracts. At the inception of an employment relationship, this is unlikely to be an issue, as no consideration is necessary beyond the agreement which includes the original restrictive covenants. However, the position isn't quite as simple when looking to introduce or vary restrictive covenants during employment, is it? No, it's not, Richard. The employer needs to show that some consideration has been given for a contractual variation. The performance of pre-existing contractual obligations will not suffice. There needs to be something new. One of the simplest ways to put this matter beyond doubt is to offer a sum of money or other benefit to the employee to which they're not otherwise entitled and which is clearly expressed to be in consideration of the newly introduced or varied covenants. Difficulties often arise where restrictive covenants are introduced as part of a package of new or revised terms. We've certainly seen, both in practice and in the case law, employees trying to argue that an additional benefit was actually consideration for some other change, for example, a change in duties, and not the restrictive covenants. It's for precisely this reason we advise expressly stating what the consideration is for the newly introduced or varied restrictive covenants. That said, and as I mentioned earlier, if a new contract containing new restrictive covenants 
is offered, along with an additional benefit to which the employee is not otherwise entitled, the employee who accepts that extra may face difficulties if they later try to argue that they did not also accept the new restrictive covenants. We've spoken about varying restrictive covenants during the employment relationship, but we frequently advise on situations where an employer seeks to argue new or varied restrictive covenants on the termination of employment, often as part of a settlement agreement. Again, this would be a contractual variation, so much of what we have discussed today will apply equally in such circumstances. However, what specific points should employers be aware of when negotiating restrictive covenants at the termination of employment? As you say, Richard, this situation normally only arises as part of a negotiated exit. As with other contractual variations, the employee must agree to the restrictive covenants and receive consideration for them. That consideration, which will normally be a sum of money, should be expressly identified in the agreement as the consideration for the new restrictive covenants. This is also important from a tax perspective, as monies paid in consideration for new restrictive covenants is subject to income tax in the same way as salary. On a positive note, restrictive covenants varied or introduced on the termination of employment, while still subject to normal restraint of trade principles, tend to be scrutinised less rigorously by the courts. The rationale for this being that on termination, the underlying facts and competitive risks are well known to the parties, and therefore the solution they agree to address those risks is likely to be inherently more reasonable. That said, leaving the introduction of restrictive covenants until the end of the employment relationship can be both risky and costly. If the employee refuses to agree to the covenants, the employer will be left with no or inadequate protection against competition. Also, depending on the circumstances of the employee's departure, the employer's bargaining position at the point of termination may be significantly weaker than at the start of the employment relationship, and this is likely to be reflected in the price paid for the covenants. Of course, entering into new restrictive covenants at the point of termination is just one possible scenario for an employer at the end of the employment relationship. There are a variety of other points to consider at that time, especially where the employer believes the employee is acting or may be looking to act in competition with the employer. This is something we will start to look at in a future podcast in this mini-series. Thanks to both Kirsten and Kate. Two key points to take away from this discussion are firstly, the importance of regular reviews of restrictive covenants, and secondly, the importance of having a clear rationale and strategy if new restrictive covenants are to be introduced once employment has begun. As always, the Stevenson Harwood employment team can bring its market-leading experience in this field to help you with these issues. Thank you for listening, and don't forget that you can listen again and subscribe to the whole series on iTunes, Stitcher and SoundCloud, or by visiting the Stevenson Harwood website. (laughs) 